to In His Grip with Dr. Chuck Betters, Senior Pastor at Glasgow Church in Bear, Delaware. In His Grip is a daily broadcast presented by Mark Inc. Ministries. Today's sermon is taken from a series of messages by Dr. Betters entitled The Grapes of Wrath, which describes the ministry of Isaiah in Israel and Judah over the course of 60 years. In today's sermon, The Grapes of Wrath, Part 1, Section A, you will see some very interesting parallels between the church under the ministry of Isaiah and how the church is viewed today. Dr. Betters instructs us that the church today is ripe for one of two things. Either there is going to be a great judgment or great revival. There might even be great judgment that brings us to the point of great revival. Let's join Dr. Betters now as he sets the scene. Isaiah chapter 5. Let me give you a picture or an overview of the international politic that surrounds or encompasses the book of Isaiah. It gives you a frame of reference in which you can see how Isaiah was preaching and what he was preaching and in what environment he was preaching in. Uh, on the international scene, there was a political force that was beginning to rise. That political force was Assyria, a rising power that was bent on world domination. Now, under Tiglath, uh, a very interesting character of history, who reigned from about 747 to 727 BC, Assyria was rebuilt. He won the support of Babylon and marched west, bringing Israel in the north into tribute, with his sights set on Judah in the south. So you have this, this power-hungry, this warmonging political leader of Assyria teaming up with Babylon that had been weakened by that time and bent on the destruction of both states of Israel, that is Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Now his son would besiege Samaria in the north for three years and severely weaken the northern capital of Israel. Now his successor, uh, a commander who usurped power and usurped authority, ultimately claimed victory over Samaria, and the city itself was destroyed in 722 B.C. So you see this rise of world power. His son, Sennacherib, then invaded Judah in the south. The northern tribe is in captivity, the city has been destroyed, and now the sights are set on the southern state, or Judah, and all of Judah's fortified cities were captured. In his own chronicles, he wrote of King Hezekiah, who was the king of Judah in the south. He said, or Sennacherib said, Hezekiah, the Jew, a prisoner in Jerusalem, his royal residence like a bird in a cage. So here was Hezekiah and the people of Judah in the south, literally surrounded by Sennacherib, with his sights set on the destruction of the holy city, Jerusalem. But he could not take Jerusalem. And the reason he could not take Jerusalem was because God intervened. The angel of death descended and 185,000 Assyrian soldiers died at the hands of the angel of death. He was forced then to retreat back to his city, which was Nineveh. And it is under that kind of a cloud that the ministry of Isaiah 
can be seen. Well, now let's move from the international scene to the domestic scene. What was going on inside of Judah? Early on, there's great prosperity. As the book of Isaiah opens, there's great prosperity, especially in the north, and equal prosperity in the south. Isaiah began his ministry mostly to the events and the kings of the southern kingdom. So when you read Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, he primarily is ministering in the south. The northern tribes of Israel, there are other prophets that are there. You'll see that he's a contemporary of Amos and Hosea and Micah. The four of them were prophets together, ministering both to the southern tribes and to the northern tribes. Now, as you go through the book of Isaiah, you're going to see there's a great, great uh, distinction between his early ministry and his later ministry. During the early years, Israel is enjoying peace and prosperity. During the later years, they are virtually in exile. His preaching ministry spans nearly 60 years. Early on, there's great wealth, great prosperity, great social stability, along with some very strong faith. But later, as you see the book unfold, Judah is in decay. Judah is being oppressed. Judah is experiencing poverty. Now, after King Uzziah's death under King Ahaz, things began to greatly deteriorate. Hold your place there in Isaiah chapter 5, by the way, and go back to 2 Kings chapter 15. Let's get a picture of the church and the state of the church just prior to its demise. 2 Kings chapter 15. I've entitled this message, The Grapes of Wrath. And you're going to see that there are some very interesting parallels between the, 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 the setting of the church under the reign or under the ministry of Isaiah and the way in which the church appears today. I think we are ripe for judgment. I think the church is ripe for two things to happen. Either there's going to be great judgment or there's going to be great revival. And there may be great judgment that brings us to the point of great revival. But I believe the church is ripe because the conditions are very similar to what we see happening in the book of Isaiah. But let's look at the description in 2 Kings chapter 15. Azariah, that's another name for Uzziah, that's the last king or the, fir the, the first king or the king who died and then Isaiah's call to the ministry takes place right upon his death. Azariah or Uzziah, son of Amaziah, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 16 years old when he became the king. And he reigned in Jerusalem 52 years. His mother's name was Jechaliah. She was from Jerusalem. Now watch this. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Isn't that a wonderful thing to say about somebody? Just as his father Amaziah had done. The high places, double underline this, the high places, however, were not removed. The people continued to offer sacrifices and burnt incense there. Now, isn't it interesting in that verse, it tells us that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, except, and it's underlined for us, it's almost as though it jumps out of the pages, it sets the stage for what was to follow. 
Here was a man who basically led the people of God the right way. However, he allowed little pieces of compromise, little deterioration of his value system, drifting away from the laws and precepts of God to, to affect the way in which future generations would, would have to live. So he wasn't concerned so much with what his children and his children's children were going to experience as much as he was what he was experiencing. So the stage is now set for something very dramatic to happen. Now he fought some very successful battles against the Philistines. He developed a well-trained army. He built towers to strengthen the walls of Jerusalem. But later on in his life, Isaiah violated God's principles of worship and he was struck with leprosy. He was then excluded from the temple, was forced to put the palace in charge of his son Jotham for the last 10 years of his life. And in 740 BC, he died in the very same year that God raised up Isaiah to be a prophet. Jotham, his son, reigned just as his father did. You have that 2 Kings 15? Look at verse 34. Jotham... That's he. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, verse 34, just as his father Isaiah had done. Now watch this, like father, like son. The high places, however, were not removed. Now that's the second time in that passage God says that. The high places were not removed. The people continued to offer sacrifices and burned incense there. Now, it then goes on to tell you about one of the great accomplishments. He built the upper gate of the temple of the Lord. Now, his son Ahaz, Jotham's son Ahaz, the Bible describes as a wicked man. That wickedness took two generations to fertilize. Two generations, and now Ahaz becomes the king. Is it any wonder why? After two generations of compromise, the seed of evil comes into its full bloom. Now what do we know about Ahaz? We know he burned his own sons alive as offerings to the very, listen, to the very same pagan deities his father and his grandfather refused to remove. He burned his children alive, sacrificed them on the, on, the, on the very altars that his father and his grandfather refused to tear down. Look at 2 Kings chapter 16, beginning with verse 2. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became the king. And he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years, unlike David his father. He did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and even sacrificed his son in the fire. Following the detestable ways of the nations of the Lord, the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites, he offered sacrifices and burnt incense at the high places, on the hilltops, and under every spreading tree. So sinful was Ahaz that when he died, Second Chronicles 28-27 tells us that the people refused to bury him where the other kings were buried. He was buried in Jerusalem, but not in the position where the other kings were buried. Why? Because he was so detestably evil. Following Ahaz, Hezekiah comes into ministry. Again, Isaiah is still preaching. So he's, his preaching ministry is spanning all of these kings. Isaiah, Jotham, 
Ahaz, and finally Hezekiah. Hezekiah stands in sharp contrast to Ahaz. He was a great reformer. Chapters 36 to 39 of the book of Isaiah are devoted to his reign. He reopened the temple. On the very first month of his rule, he reopened the temple. He fought and rebelled against Assyria. And when Sennacherib invaded Judah in 701 BC, he was unsuccessful. God even extends Hezekiah's life for an additional 15 years in response to his prayers for deliverance. But here's something very interesting. His son, Manasseh, was even more wicked than any of his predecessors. So you see this struggle, this struggle of good and evil, of people who seek to be obedient to God but allow the significant compromises into their lives that thwart them from that obedience. And for generations, it comes, and you see this spiral downward, 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 until finally Manasseh is brought onto the scene, and tradition tells us he was the one who finally executed Isaiah. In fact, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 37, that talks about the sawing in two that the prophets endured is probably a reference to the fact that Isaiah was sawn in two by Manasseh, the wicked king. Well, what about the man Isaiah himself? Isaiah is the Paul of the Old Testament. There's no other way to describe his great theological work. The book of Isaiah is a masterpiece of Old Testament theology. He knew, listen, he knew God intimately, and he obeyed him faithfully even though the world around him was collapsing and crumbling, even though he saw the church slipping into dramatic apostasy and great evil. His father's name was Amos, A-M-O-Z, not A-M-O-S, making him King Uzziah's cousin, the first king. This means that Isaiah was from royal bloodlines. His cousin was King Uzziah, and so he began his ministry in his own family prophesying to his own people. He was a great historian and would write the chronicles of both Isaiah's reign and Hezekiah's reign. He was a disciple maker. Chapter 8, verse 16 of the book of Isaiah would tell us that he would bind up the testimony and seal up the laws among my disciples. In spite of the very busy schedule that he kept prophesying up and down the land of Judah, he significantly made an impact on the lives of other people, his disciples. He was married with two children, and his wife was also a prophetess. We know that from Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 3. His son's names give us clues as to what the message of his book would be. The first, the first son he names Shear Jashub, which means a remnant shall return. Now here's a picture of a people destroyed, all but a remnant. And that remnant shall return. The heartbeat of Isaiah's message would be the grace of God. That God, who could utterly destroy Judah, chose to bring them into judgment and captivity, and in so doing would preserve a remnant. He names his firstborn son, a remnant shall return. His second son's name was much more complicated, in fact, too complicated for me to pronounce here, but it means quick to plunder and swift to spoil. 
Now here's a picture of a two-sided God. A remnant shall return, quick to plunder and swift to spoil. Judgment and grace, judgment and grace. And that's the message of the book of Isaiah. Both of these things, themes will become evident in the book. The judgment of God and the preservation of a remnant, the triumph of grace. Well, how's the book divided? Well, the book's divided two ways. Chapters 1 through 39, and then chapters 40 through 66. In fact, so, so, so distinctive is that division that it has caused some scholars to say, well, Isaiah didn't write the whole book. He wrote only the first half of the book. Somebody else wrote the second half of the book. But you see, in chapters 1 through 39, we have warnings before Israel goes into exile. And the sequence of history that led to Israel's eventual exile and captivity. But then when you come to chapters 40 to 66, you have some very interesting things taking place. The prophet is looking down through heaven's telescope. He sees in chapters uh, 40 through 55 the immediate return of the people of God. So years later, probably 40, 50 years later, the people who were returning from exile would read the prophecies, the later prophecies of Isaiah, and would receive great comfort from the promises of God. But then the book takes that telescope a little bit further. It not only looks at the immediate return of Israel from their captivity, but chapters 55 through the end of the book are what I call the eschaton. The eschaton is that section of prophecy where Isaiah peers all the way down to the end. All the way down to events that we haven't even seen yet. All the way down to the day of the Lord. So what you have in this great prophecy is a man with his eyes not only on the immediate situation that he was dealing with, but the situation of a generation to come and the situation that you and I will have to face someday. That is why there is such great, so many great parallels in the book of Isaiah when we understand what happened to them in light of what we believe will happen to us. Learn these lessons. Now, go back to Isaiah chapter 5, which is where we need to be. Isaiah chapter 5, beginning with verse... Uh, 4. Isaiah chapter 5, beginning with verse 4. Now one thing we know, that the vineyard or the vine was a picture of Israel. In Isaiah chapter 5, the prophet comes together for the purpose of singing a song. The first seven verses of Isaiah 5 are in song format. He says, verse 1, I will sing for the one I love. A song about his vineyard. Now you're sitting in the congregation. The prophet stands up and says, I'm going to sing a song. You've just brought in all of your grapes. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a time of celebration. I'm sure there were people sitting there saying, Amen, sing it. I'm going to sing a song for the one I love. A song about his vineyard. That is, about his church. I am going to sing a song about his church. And he says in verse 1, My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. Now, of course, the loved one is God. 
The vineyard is his people, his church. The hillside is where he has planted them in the world. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up. He cleared it of stones. He planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes. But it yielded only bad fruit. This song begins the grimmest section of this preface to the book of Isaiah, showing the inevitability of God's judgment to come. In chapter 1 and verse 8, you don't have to turn to it, the vineyard is a metaphor and it is introduced to show us a remnant that God has preserved. But when you come to chapters 3 and chapter 4, we read that the vineyard has been spoiled. An enemy has come in and spoiled the vineyard. Yet God intervened to pass judgment on its behalf and against the spoilers. Now, however, the vineyard is beyond repair. This is a grim, hopeless section of total destruction that God announces upon his people. Even God himself asks a rhetorical question that shows us the desperateness of the situation. Look at verse 4. What more could have been done for my vineyard? You see, now the loved one is talking. Then I have done for it. When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? You know, when you read chapter 1, go back to chapter 1 of Isaiah. When you read chapter 1, as you're going through the book, you see sin blighted Israel's national life. Yet there was still hope. Even though there was sin in the midst of the people, there was hope. Look at verses 26 and 27. Here's the hope. I will restore your judges as in days of old. Your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion will be redeemed with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness. There's hope amidst judgment. There's hope, a hope for, re for revival, a hope for renewal. When you come to chapters 2, 3, and 4, sin marred uh, life's highest purposes for Israel. Yet offered to them was cleansing and a new creation. Look at chapter 4, verses 2 to 6. Even though their nation had been blighted, even though sin had marred their highest purposes, he says in verse 2 of chapter 4, In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. Sometimes I feel like we're reading today's headlines in the scriptures. And I realize that if we don't learn from history, we are doomed to repeat it. As we start this new series, The Grapes of Wrath, I hope you are prayerfully considering how your own life decisions are impacting your children and grandchildren. I'm Sharon Betters, Chuck's wife, and I'm really glad you tuned in today. God gives us the privilege and opportunity to break the downward spiral of history on a personal level as well as nationally, one decision at a time. If you need encouragement to make those hard decisions, or to simply walk by faith, 
We have lots of free resources on our website that are designed to offer help and hope to the hurting, as well as to encourage believers to fall more passionately in love with Jesus. Ron is our program producer, and he'll share with you several ways you can access these resources. Thank you for joining us for today's message from the Grapes of Wrath series. If you would like to receive a copy of this entire sermon, you can contact Mark Inc. Ministries and request the Grapes of Wrath Part 1 or simply reference sermon number 94-33. Mark Inc. Ministries can be reached toll-free at 877-MARK-INC. That's 877-627-5462. Check out our website at www.markinc.org. If you would like to help In His Grip and our radio ministry stay on the air, or help us to continue providing free resources to hurting people. Your prayers and gifts are always welcome. You can call us toll-free at 877-MARK-INC. That's 877-627-5462. Or visit our website at markinc.org and click on the support button for more information. We would like to thank you for your continued listening and support. Mark Inc. Ministries is a nonprofit ministry that appreciates your ongoing prayers and support. For more information or if you would like to email us, go to www.markinc.org. We would also like to invite you to join us for our Sunday morning service at Glasgow Church. The church is located at 2880 Summit Bridge Road in Bear, Delaware, and our service begins at 10:30 a.m. each Sunday morning. If you are unable to attend the service in person, you can join our live stream from anywhere by going to our website at www.glasgowchurch.com. If you would like to contact us at the church, we can be reached at area code 302-834-4772 or through our website at glasgowchurch.com. Thank you again for listening to today's broadcast. Be sure to join us tomorrow as Dr. Betters continues this challenging series, The Grapes of Wrath. Have a blessed day and remember that God is sovereign and you can trust him as long as you are in his grip.